coming up on Tech Nation with scores of poverty intervention programs to choose from. What works? USF professor and development economist Bruce Weidick brings us Shrewd Samaritan, an insight into such programs as child sponsorship and giving away everything from shoes to laptops. Then a global health challenge, the widespread bacteria H. pylori and its role in stomach ulcers and gastric cancer. Red Hill Biopharma has a treatment in their pipeline and a plan on how to avoid creating antibiotic resistance. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. At the time of this 2013 Tech Nation interview, Gavin Newsom was running for lieutenant governor of California after serving two terms as mayor of San Francisco and before that, a county supervisor. It was during his tenure as mayor that social media exploded. Right here in San Francisco, Twitter, Facebook, texting, Google, you name it. He says it made him wonder, why are we more engaged with each other on social media and less engaged with government? You brought me back when I was a county supervisor. I remember there was a big debate about whether or not we should charge people a premium for paying their parking tickets online, as if we were offering some extraordinary service uh, and there would be a penalty associated with it. And of course, when I was mayor early on, Biz Stone and Evan Williams, the co-founders of Twitter, no one knew what that was. I remember they tried to get a meeting with me and uh, we had a staff that said, well, you know, he's really busy. And I said, boy, I'm just intrigued. What's, what, what's this Twitter thing? Is that a sound? What, what is it? And of course, here we are uh, a few years later. It's remarkable how ubiquitous these smartphones are as we move mobile local, social, now uh, to the cloud, and how far we've come in such a short period of time. And you're right, that disconnect is, from my perspective, this new digital divide that's taking shape. You know, we talk so much about socioeconomics. Five years ago, I was trying to Wi-Fi public housing in San Francisco as a big call to arms. And now I uh, look around, and I was brought by my former homeless czar in San Francisco to a homeless shelter the other day, and the big concern they have is access to walls to get their cell phones into their smartphones charged. (laughs) And I thought, this world has changed, and I'm not, you know, not that long ago. So we've got to reconcile that, and we've got to close that gap. And and I think it's serious because you have a whole generation of folks that have grown up digital uh, or as digital natives, and uh, they're just not going to be educated. They're not going to be engaged. They're not going to be as interested uh, in this analog model, this hierarchical top-down governmental model in terms of their engagement in the future, and you're seeing the contours of that already. We're so good at amplifying voices, I mean, relatively speaking, and certainly President Obama sort of picking up on that. Howard Dean model and the great work Joe Trippi did with the My Barack Obama campaign. 35,000 self-organized communities came together, really in a sort of 21st century email campaign. It really wasn't that much more than that, but at the time, truly cutting edge. And folks were very enthusiastic and excited. Their voices were amplified, not just uh, to self-organize and volunteer, but also to donate and, of course, uh, to vote. And they did in historic ways. That said, once the election was over, Everyone started feeling left out. They started feeling like their voices didn't matter. And in response to that, uh, President Obama said, oh, no, no, we're going to keep this going and did something called change.gov or change.org and 
asked everyone, what's their priority? 2008, you know, war in Iraq, war on, uh, in Afghanistan, war on terror and climate change issues. And of course, the financial meltdown are the backdrop. And what did people want? All these communities came together, dominantly said, legalize marijuana. And President Obama made a flippant, infamously flippant comment, and folks did not like the nature of that response uh, because they were serious. And immediately that site went down for reconstruction. Those voices were turned off, and we had a broadcast model. It's not an indictment of the president. He's done more on this than anyone else. But in essence, a broadcast model for the next four years until last year. All of a sudden, hey, Bob, how are you? It's President Obama again. Hey, Michelle has just called me. I got a call from President Clinton on behalf of President Obama. Uh, All of a sudden we cared or they cared and we mattered. And so the question is, can we govern with these tools of technology and have a two-way, not a one-way conversation with this sort of broadcast professor, I say respectfully, student relationship, but a real Socratic iterative relationship where we're co-producers and co-creators as this whole millennial generation has become more and more accustomed to. At the time of this interview in 2013, Gavin Newsom had just published his book, Citizenville, How to Take the Town Square Digital and Reinvent Government. He went on to win the lieutenant governorship in California, twice, and on January 7, 2019, Gavin Newsom was sworn in as the governor of California. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, development economist Bruce Weidick on global giving, from sponsoring a child to giving shoes away to even giving money and time. What works and what doesn't? We're talking about shrewd Samaritan, faith, economics, and the road to loving our global neighbor. Then the challenge presented by the bacteria H. pylori. It's a driver of stomach ulcers as well as gastric cancer. In fact, the World Health Organization has recently named H. pylori a class one carcinogen. Red Hill Biopharma not only has a treatment in its pipeline, it has a plan to avoid antibiotic resistance. Bruce Weidick. Well, Bruce, welcome to Tech Nation. Great to be with you, Moira. Great to be with you today. First thing I want to ask you about is that we've seen ads on television and in print for years, some of us decades, imploring us that for some small amount each month, we can sponsor a child in a poverty-stricken situation or just a horrible condition. Are those real? You know, that's a that's a great question. You know, does child sponsorship actually work? Because uh, I saw the, the tearjerker ads on, on television as well. And in fact, I was sponsoring a child 
And as a development economist, I thought, you know, I kind of have a responsibility to see if this actually works. So uh, I tried for years to get an organization to work with me that um, that did child sponsorship. And finally, we got Compassion International to work with us on the study that we did of 10,000 adults, many of whom were sponsored. And um, it was a really fascinating study, what we found. Now, tell us, where were the adults? Uh, what what kind of parameters did you look at? Sure. Well, it, they rolled out their program across a number of countries during the 80s. And what we found was a, was a gold nugget for a development economist or a statistics person, which was that children had to be 12 or under um, when the program was actually rolled out in their village. So we were able to compare the life outcomes of kids that just happened to be 12 years old and younger when the program came to their village with their older siblings who were 13 years old or over. And we, we, did, the, we did the study in Kenya and Uganda and the Philippines, India, uh, Guatemala, and Bolivia, actually six countries um, with about 10,000 adults. And what we found was that the kids that were part of the program, you know, controlling for family genetics and family environment and so forth, that the kids who were in the program were about 40% more likely to graduate from secondary school. They were about 35% more likely to have a white collar job. They were, um, they were much more likely to live in a better home, you know, with better walls, better roof. Their income was about 20% higher as, as an adult. They're more likely to be village leaders, church leaders, all, all these things. So it was, it was one of the most satisfying studies that, that I've done. And it, it ended up getting a lot of media attention and, and brought more people into child sponsorship, which was really gratifying. And Bruce, did you ever meet the child you sponsored? No, I, I never have. I, I never have, which is interesting. I've met a lot of children that have been sponsored and while we were doing the study, but but um, yeah, right now we sponsor three, and and we haven't uh, we haven't met any of them yet. But we hope to. One's in Guatemala, and I do some work with my NGO that I help lead down in Guatemala. So we're hoping to to see Brenda sometime. Now you did describe some people who really went out of their way to actually meet their their sponsored children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, they have an opportunity to go down and 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 meet their children, and and you know one of the things that we find with with kids is that. Um, you know, we've never done a formal study on whether meeting their sponsor actually sort of affects their schooling outcomes, but aspirations and hope are really, really important for kids. And just, I think just to know that somebody out there actually cares about them means a lot um, because, because a lot of times these kids grow up in, in very, very difficult circumstances. And to know that there's this person on the other side of the ocean that, that really cares about them apparently makes a really big, really big difference. One on one. Yeah. One person yeah. to one person. Yeah. You mentioned that you were a development economist. What mm-hmm. does that mean? So, yeah. So a development economist is a, is a regular old geeky economist, but one that's interested <laughs> in the welfare. I know. It's not like, <laughs> ooh, I wish I could marry a prince. No. Uh, NBA player. No, a development economist. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I that's what know. my wife said. I don't know. Um, but it's it's an economist who works on poverty and development issues in most mostly in poor countries. So although although more and more development economists are working on domestic poverty issues as well. Ah, so it used to be other places. Yeah, and now, now it's, it could be here. Yeah, yeah, especially with the trend toward increasing inequality in the United States. Uh we're doing a lot of research 
in the United States. Now, your book, Shrewd Samaritan, refers back to the parable of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament. So mm-hmm. so recount for us the parable of the Good Samaritan. So many people will be familiar with sure, it. Sure, sure. Yeah, a lot of us first learned the, the Good Samaritan in, in Sunday school. But so so you have this, this Samaritan who's walking along this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he stumbles upon this this guy who's been beaten up and left for dead. Um, before that, uh, a priest and a Levite had gone by and had, had sort of overlooked this guy, had passed this guy. And there are different theories about why they might do that because of ceremonial cleanliness reasons, or they were afraid of getting hurt themselves. But anyway, so finally the, the good Samaritan comes, comes by. And, they, and Samaritan actually is a person like a Levite or a priest. Yeah. Samaritan is, um, the Samaritans were a group of people that lived next to Israel. And they were a mixture of people of um, of Hebrew descendancy, and then people of Gentile descendancy. So they did not get along with uh, with with the Jews. Um, and there's a lot of animosity between the two groups. And so it was very radical for Jesus to actually use this example of a Samaritan as his good guy protagonist, right? Who rescues this guy on the road, and takes him to an inn, and um, pays for pays the innkeeper to. Um, to house him and and fix him up. And I always love the part of the parable that said, and if it costs more than this, I'll repay you on my way back. Yeah. It's like, I'll I'll take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a beautiful parable that's affected. Really it's affected Western ethics um, for the last 2000 years and the way that we think about the anonymous other. In fact, you know, today we have these laws called good Samaritan laws that are actually named after the the parable. It's been a long time since I thought of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, we have a serious problem here with the homeless in San Francisco. So this parable comes close to reality in certain parts of the city, uh, including downtown. You can Mm -hmm. regularly come in within a few feet of a homeless person who might be sleeping or standing there or doing whatever they're doing, uh, usually one at a time. This is how it is in San Francisco. Sure. Uh, it's this is an interesting question for us today. I don't think yeah. I think everyone thought of it as a um, sort of oh well, that's an interesting allegory, but uh, mm-hmm. no 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 it's one on one in modern day San Francisco. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, homelessness has increased dramatically in San Francisco, and I, I was actually just this this last week I was with my students at the St. Anthony's Dining Hall. And a woman told us that homelessness has gone up by the census in San Francisco from about 7,300 sleeping on the streets at night a few years ago to 9,400 um, just this past summer. And and it, it's one homelessness is is interesting because it's one of the few um, one of the few uh, poverty outcomes that we see that's actually associated with prosperity. It's a cause of prosperity. It's it's one of it it, it results from prosperity. Where um, where housing rents are bid up, housing prices are bid up um, through people moving in, taking new jobs, so that the bottom rung of people that are housed in 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 the least expensive expensive units basically fall off the ladder. And what we're looking at in San Francisco is higher and higher rents, higher and higher salaries, higher and higher amounts to buy homes, and so mm-hmm. as that squeezes up, if you're in the same old same old. Somebody's going to fall out the bottom. No, a- absolutely. And 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 when we were in St. Anthony's last week, we saw 
we, I saw a very large number of seniors there, large, much larger than I had seen before. And I think some of these seniors are, um, are simply being priced out of the housing market here and, and are in pretty desperate, desperate straits. Um, but, um, but it's, it's a problem really that, um, I mean, one of the things I talk about in the book is that homelessness is, is a problem that has to be addressed in a very simple way. And that's through more, lo, more, uh, low income housing. A more affordable housing. There's really oh, no. Oh, you're other homeless. Way. We give you a home. It, oh, yeah. Wow. It seems, <laughs> it seems a little too easy, but um, but but um, that is really the only way to do that. The problem is um, nobody wants those housing units in their backyard, um, but um, that's what we need to do. I know, and, and everyone has a different reaction uh, when you come upon a homeless person by yourself, and it's dark. That's what happened to me in the last mm-hmm. year, and. They were sound asleep on the sidewalk. <laughs> they didn't notice I was there, but it's yeah. exactly what the what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about. Not mm. that I should have woken this person up and said, sure. "Come over here," <laughs> but sure. it's like wait a minute, we do encounter these opportunities, these instances, sure. and uh, it says a lot about us. That's sure. a tremendous amount. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is University of San Francisco professor Bruce Weidick. His academic research investigates the impact of poverty programs, and he's a research affiliate of Notre Dame and the Center for Effective Global Action at UC Berkeley. You might know him from his book, Games and Economic Development, published by Cambridge University Press, or his novel, The Taste of Many Mountains. He's here today with shrewd Samaritan faith, economics, and the road to loving our global neighbor. Well, in addition to what I've just described, (laughs) you do many things, Bruce. And I understand you're also now the director of the San Francisco campus of Westmont College, and you're starting up a center for poverty and development studies. What are you looking to do there? Yeah, we have uh, we have a group of students, about 25 students, that live in this old Victorian house on the corner of Lyon and Fell Streets. And um, we're starting a new curricular focus on poverty and development studies. So the students come and they live with us for a semester and uh, do an internship in San Francisco and um, and take a variety of courses in the poverty and development studies area, including economics, which I teach. Right. And that's how would you describe that neighborhood? It's a very it's a very interesting neighborhood because it's it's a neighborhood in transition. It used to be a lower income neighborhood and and uh um now it's it's very assertive in, in calling itself uh north of Panhandle, which is a which is considered to be sort of a, a more upscale neighborhood. So like like many parts of San Francisco, it's undergoing it's undergoing this um this gentrification process. Yeah, not not long ago, one of my sons was living in a a place. It was on Hate Street. Everybody's heard of the Hate Ashbury. Well, this is a, a different area of hate. And I was dropping him off, and I said, "Oh, honey, this is kind of sketchy." And he went, "Mom, it's edgy." And I was <laughs> like, "Oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> edgy." Some, some of the line between sketchy and edgy is yeah, a fine like, line. And you know, it's like every other. My Victorians is like every other Victorian looks uh-huh. this way or that. But so it's a transition neighborhood, and it's close to many, many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Many, many it is, areas. including University of San Francisco, including the mm-hmm. University of San Francisco. Now, getting back to Shrewd Samaritan, you write. It's been my experience that most people have a genuine desire to help the poor, but it's also fraught with, now I'm not quoting here, with challenges. How do I do that? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, mo- most people are, are befuddled by what they can do to actually, that will actually help the poor. 
Um, and so generally what we do is we give out of our good intentions. Um, sometimes we give in a way that makes us feel good, but is a way that's not necessarily effective. And so what this book tries to do is to try to bring together heart with head and help people who want to engage global poverty and domestic poverty to engage in a smart way. Now, this isn't a one-trick pony. It isn't just, okay, here's individuals that want to give. It's also, well, what if you have started a nonprofit or an NGO, non-governmental organization? Mm -hmm. Or what if I'm in a corporation? Or what if I'm a religious person? Or I'm a non-religious person? Mm -hmm. It's like you kind of cover the waterfront. Mm -hmm. Or I'm in a group, and I'm a group and want to do something. Yeah. Yeah. There are a number of things that we point out that would be um, would be wonderful ways to give. One is through money. One is through time. Um, also toward um, toward interventions like early childhood interventions, for example, which are incredibly incredibly effective. Um, simply giving cash through an organization like Give Directly is in, is incredibly effective. Um, sponsoring a child overseas. People thought that didn't work, that it was just a marketing ploy. But it, but especially with certain organizations, it's, you know, we, we, we've shown that, it, um, that it's amazingly effective. Um, charter schools, um, the KIPP Charter Schools program. Now tell people what that is. Yeah, so char- charter schools are, are schools that are publicly funded, but that come in with a certain, um, a certain model that in many ways replicates a private school experience. And um, there have been studies that have been done by top economists at MIT looking at the impact of KIPP charter schools and, and, and other charter schools that kind of replicate their model around the country. And what they found is that they're incredibly effective at, um, at taking uh, kids that come from the inner city or from, from kind of tougher experiences and turning these kids into potential college goers. And it's it's really exciting to see what um, what models like KIPP, for example, can do um, with kids in the inner city. Well, you say, okay, you got good intentions. How do you know you're effective? And you're giving some examples here. Uh, I was really interested, and in you're saying, well, you know, understand the root of the problems and harness resources and the causes and effects of poverty. But the last one really got to me: the warm glow of being a benefactor versus tangible benefits for the intended beneficiary. Mm-hmm. And I think you got humans down again. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, I gave and it was so great. It sure. felt so good. But it's like, wait a minute, have a talk with yourself. <laughs> Is it any good unless it really made a difference? Yeah. Yeah. In the book, I talk about um, stages people go through in learning to engage in a meaningful, effective way, in effective way with uh, with the global poor. And the first stage is um, is just ignorance. Like we just don't know that about the global poor that they exist. And then sometimes we move to the stage of indifference where we know, but we're just so concerned about our daily life we don't really we don't really care. Uh, the third stage is idealism, where where and I see a lot of college students that are kind of in the idealistic stage where it's just that if we all drink gallons and gallons of of fair trade coffee that that that's going to make this <laughs> yeah. giant dent oh, yeah. in global in, in global <laughs> poverty. Um, but past that, we can move into these stages of investigation, which can be formal. It could be a researcher running a randomized controlled trial on, say, an education or health intervention, or it could be, it could be somebody just actually asking questions of a person about what they really need, right? Even just very simple and informal investigation. And then I talk about a fifth stage, which is introspection, which is looking at ourselves 
and um, and asking ourselves if if we're really serious about engaging with the poor, what particular roles can we play, or role can we play based on our own natural giftedness? And then and then the sixth stage is of the six eyes I call them is impact, where we actually begin to have um, an impact on those we seek to help, and not and it's and our our giving and our actions aren't just motivated by this kind of warm glow feeling. What's so different about these six stages is that five of them are typical in you're doing this and you're doing that, and you're doing this, and then that fifth one, that introspection, mm-hmm. it's like no, you're actually not doing anything right mm-hmm. now. You're actually mm-hmm. going within yourself and trying to figure yeah. out. You know, right. well, what what am I doing, and am I doing it well? Am I what's going on here? And and we're seldom asked to to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there 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 are different roles that we can that we can possibly play. And I talk about this in the book a little bit. Um, an investigator, which is actually I'm sort of more of an investigator, but a giver, a practitioner, a creator, a director. Um, an advocate. So I talk about these different roles that we can play. And I, and I have actually a little test in the book that people can give kind of a little self-test. Many of us have experienced admonitions or entreaties throughout our lives to love our neighbors. And the subtitle of your book refers to global neighbor. What does mm. that mean? Yeah, well, you know, back in, in say, the, you know, the New Testament times that we were talking about before, about the closest thing to a global neighbor that, um, that somebody living in, say, Israel had was maybe a Samaritan, right? That was about as far a Roman, you know, that was about as far away from their own, um, from their own kinship group that, that, um, that they could really stretch. I mean, today, in today's world with technology as it is, and this ability to reach on the other side of the world, we can actually, you could go on the web to give directly and, and you could, you could zap a hundred dollars in the savings account, in the cell phone based savings account of an East African. Um, and, bing, just and like that. bing, and, and 93 cents out of that dollar is going to go right into that, into that person's account with a very minimal overhead. And that's due to new technology or even just the, the efficiencies in child sponsorship are amazing. Now, you know, the percentage that what you give that actually goes to programming, um, for these for these kids and for for staff people around them to tutor them and to love them and show them um, to help bring out their own natural gifts and help them flourish. So so there are many ways that we can that we can very literally love our global neighbor that that weren't possible even even a couple generations ago. You looked at a number of propositions and you evaluated them with three parameters. Mm. Let's talk about what those three parameters were and how you rated those parameters themselves. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I rated them um, by, by, by a couple of things. One is, one is uh, what, what I called sort of bang for the buck, or, or I sort of abbreviate it bang two, right? Which <laughs> yeah. just is, this is just like your, your, um, your, your, your typical sort of, is it, is it effective kind of, kind of rating. But then, then I also try to go beyond that a little bit and saying, okay, well, something might be effective, like for, for example, a vaccine, but just because it's effective doesn't mean that it necessarily leads to, to real human flourishing, right? I mean, it may, or, or, or it may not. And so, so there's also this kind of like bang for the bang for the buck, which is, is, is not only something effective, but, but is it, does its effectiveness uh, really means something that's transformative for that for that individual, and then I also talk about about how um, 
how general, how generalizable it is. Like, can it be done everywhere? Does, does that intervention have to be done among a very specific group of people for it to be effective too? But the, but one of the things I try to point out in the book is, is our bottom line really should be, uh, should be human flourishing, human dignity and human flourishing that both among ourselves and in our relationship with, with, uh, the global poor, but, um, but among the people that we're trying to help, that that's what we, that's what we want to shoot for. I've been speaking with Bruce Weideck, the author of Shrewd Samaritan, Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, using an antibiotic sparingly, once only in your lifetime. That's one way around antibiotic resistance for a bacteria causing many problems. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Bruce Weideck, the author of Shrewd Samaritan, Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. Well, so many people uh, are familiar with Tom's Shoes. You buy a pair, they buy a pair. Describe how that program works and how it rated. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, um, about, uh, about six years ago, um, Tom Shoes asked us to carry out a randomized control trial on their shoe giving program. So what Tom's does is when you when you buy a pair of their shoes, they give a pair of shoes to a needy child one for one um, in a developing country. And so we carried out a randomized control trial in El Salvador among about 1,500 children. And about half of these guys got Tom's shoes, uh, the, the, the giving shoes that they, that they, that they give away, uh, and, um, and about half didn't. And what we wanted to, what we wanted to test for is to see if it increased school attendance because maybe you need shoes to go to school, and so having a free, uh, a free pair of shoes would help kids to go to school, or maybe it would improve their foot health, or maybe it would affect their time allocation. And to be honest, we didn't really find uh, that many uh, that many effects. Um, 
we, we found a little in bit what of what you were looking for. Yeah. And what we were looking for. Um, we, we found that they went to school maybe a little bit. School attendance went up maybe a little bit. But un- unfortunately, what we found is um, when we asked the question, do you think that your family should provide for its own needs or that other people should provide for your family needs? We found a big increase in the number of kids that said that other people should provide for their family's needs. So it seemed like giving away the shoes increased aid dependency a little bit. But but to Tom's credit, and, and this got a lot of sort of negative press for, for, for Tom's. There's an article in The Economist and some other things really kind of dumping on Tom's shoes. But, but I have to say, I give Tom's a lot of credit. Um, those of us that worked on the research project developed a lot of respect for Tom's because based on the results of the randomized control trial and some other internal research they were doing, they changed their model. They're a very, very nimble company, very nimble organization. And so they started to give away shoes conditionally upon school attendance. And they started to develop the, the shoes that they were giving out in El Salvador wore out really quickly. So they started to give out better, more durable shoes. Um, they even created these these neat sort of snow boots for 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 kids in Mongolia, <laughs> and then they started they started to uh, to give away other products too. For example, if you buy a pair of their sunglasses, they they'll perform a cataract surgery on someone, which which probably has huge effects. I and mean, we haven't done a study on it, but it's likely to have much greater effects than we found with the shoes. So I give Tom's. I I, I think Tom's is a great company. I give them a, a lot of credit because they did this. Because they did this randomized controlled trial, and then they actually acted on the results. Um, I'm a big fan of Tom's. What I like about that is that, again, it sounded so good. They didn't have to ask you. You know, it's like everybody's buying in that this is a great thing. They could have done that forever. They could have piles of That's shoes right. in every That's at every right. port. You know, baking in the sun, and they still would have looked good. They said, Are, "Is this really right?" And they went in and asked you didn't know if the answer was going to be good. And then they turned around and they went back and they just kept revising. And so many times we become, uh, what's the word? You be, you just get tired and you just say, well, whatever. We'll sure. just keep doing the Apathetic, same thing again. Yeah. You've got to go back in and reinvent what it is that you're doing to help the world or to help others. Yeah, absolutely. And and we've seen big turnarounds with, with the, the largest uh, poverty-oriented NGO um, at least it's based in the United States is world vision who, who did not have a particularly close relationship um, in previous years with the scientific community in doing program evaluations, but has really done a 180 on this. Um, they have a program go baby go that that's an early childhood intervention. That's one of my favorite interventions that I talk about in the book. And um, I mean, we just see these huge impacts from on children, the kind of the, the um, from in utero, to two to three years old and world visions go baby go program just has does all the right stuff they've done they've run randomized controlled trials on it found huge impacts like we almost always find with early childhood interventions and um yeah i just have to give them a lot of credit for that now you've said this a number of times randomized control trials and of course i interrupted you at one point saying well for the questions you asked you know (laughs) tell people what we're talking about there and both what it can tell you and its limits Sure. A randomized controlled trial is um, is a scientific study that's, for example, used used a lot in medicine in the in the pharmaceutical industry, where to ascertain the effectiveness of a drug, they randomly choose um, a treatment group out of a, out of uh, the group of people that are in the study. Usually, it's about half of the group, 
and then and then assign that group the medicine they're trying to test, and then the other half get a placebo drug. Yeah. Um, so to control for placebo effects, because maybe if you think you're taking a medicine that's going to help you, you get better anyway. And we found that these placebo effects do actually exist. So so in development economics, um, economists who study the global poor, um, randomized control trials started started becoming adopted about 15 years ago on a widespread basis. Um, Ted Miguel at UC Berkeley, um, who's who's the director of the Center for Effective Global Action, ran one of the first well-known randomized controlled trials on on deworming medicine in Kenya, and um, and even now is doing 15 year follow ups on this um, on this program, finding positive impacts from deworming. But since then, and how did it work? Amazing results. So deworming and and other very inexpensive health interventions are ones that I highlight in the book as being um, as being very sort of shrewd places to give if we if we want to help the global poor. A lot of this is about you give it away, you send money, but then there are those that go in the field. Uh, medical dentistry, slow work carries a high price. <laughs> any kind of surgeon, any kind mm. cleft palates, Operation Smile in uh, in India. I mean, there's a slightly different formula when you're talking about sending medical people into the field. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the stories that I tell in the book is about my dentist, Dr. David Yee, here in in San Francisco, who, um, you know, he he found out I was a development economist, and and he would always ask me, you know, what crazy countries have you been to lately? And and I said, have you ever considered one of those dental missions? And and he said, no, no, the city's the city's good enough for me. A few years later, he he said, I just want you want to let you know, I went on one of those dental missions that you were that you were talking about. And I said, really? How'd it go? He said, well, I went to Jamaica and. And I guess he'd been planning to bring his, you know, his his plaque scraper and his spit sucker and and mouthwash and everything. And the and and he talked to this missionary dentist. He said, "You know, you won't be needing all of that. All, all we do here is extractions." He said, "Oh, okay." And so he so he arrived at the on the tarmac and and um and the missionary dentist said, "Did you bring your forceps?" And he said, "Yeah, I brought my forceps." That's what you need for yeah. the extraction. <laughs> and and um and she said, "By the way, how many extractions can you do?" in a day. And he, he, you know, he, he never pondered this thought, you know, uh, on, uh, you know, as might be carried out on his upper middle class San Francisco patients. And so he said, I think I could do about eight. And apparently the missionary dentist looked kind of disappointed. And, and he said, well, how many should I do? And she said, well, yesterday I did 140. And, and obviously a number like that is, is stunning. But, um, but what happens if, uh, if somebody has a rotten tooth it can lead to either sepsis of the brain or it can lead to a swelling in the throat, which can cause suffocation. So, um, so abscess teeth can be fatal. And I like the way this missionary dentist thought because she thought like an economist, right? <laughs> that slow <laughs> I thought work, you would like this so, <laughs> so, Because slow work carries a heavy price, right? Um, so, so she's doing these, you know, hundreds of extractions and um, maybe saving lives along the way um, among when, when resources and time are scarce. Um, cosmetic surgery or cosmetic dental work um, just doesn't have as much uh, value as something that might save somebody's life. And so he got with the program, right? He got with the program. And, and now, Dr. Yee, if you go into his office over on, on, on Clement and 31st, he has a whole wall full of pictures of his work in Nicaragua, El Salvador, Dominican Republic, 
Haiti. Um, it's, a, it's a really beautiful thing. And this is something that, that now that he's very committed to. Well, the third part of your book is effective and ineffective poverty interventions. Let's talk ineffective. Give me an example. What's your favorite example? I have one, but you, you go for one. <laughs> my, my favorite example, I would have to say, it's almost a tie between fair trade coffee uh, and one laptop per child. Oh, but that's I ha- mine. Three I laptops have to go, for school children. I have to go with one laptop per child as, as being the least least effective intervention that's been studied rigorously. That um, Some researchers at the American... Uh, Inter-American Development Bank carried out a randomized controlled trial giving away laptops to hundreds of kids in Peru um, and then and then with a control group. And essentially they found no impact on learning, no impact on wanting to learn. Um, the one positive impact they found was that, that students knew, knew how to navigate that one particular type of inexpensive computer that they, that they gave. Um, another positive is that they've installed the device on the computer to keep the kids from browsing pornography, which is a positive. Um, but we, we just don't see any, any positive impacts on education from just blindly giving away. None of the leaping into the knowledge economy, none of the changing the, well, you know, it doesn't show up in the, doesn't show up in the data. And it's an example of something that where, where we give out of something that we think is essential for us, but may not be what's essential for um, for low-income kids in developing countries. Mohammed Yunus is also an economist, as you are, a professor, as mm-hmm. you are. He believes that poverty can be eradicated. And with effort, we'll have to visit a museum to see what it used to be like if you mm. lived in poverty. Are you of the same mind? Poverty could go away? Well, Mohammed Yunus won the Nobel Prize, the Nobel Peace Prize, actually, for his um, development of microfinance in, in Bangladesh. And um, and I think when he said that he was thinking of microfinance as this tool that that when implemented around the world could lift hundreds of million hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. That's not what the evidence says. Um, there there have been some some really good rigorous studies done on microfinance in in many countries involving these randomized trials, and what we find overall are are very modest effects of microfinance. It's it is not the silver bullet that we thought it was. 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so that that's kind of sad news to some, um, but um, it's not a bad intervention. Um, and, and it, and it does do some positive things. It uh, has a pretty big impact on say like the top 10% of entrepreneurs. It's just hard to identify who those top 10% the ones are. ones who are already got the entrepreneurial drift and yeah, environment. Yeah, who've already got a the, lot of entrepreneurial how they can drive. Make it work. But after that... Yeah, Not after so that, the, you know, the, on the middle group, the impacts are very, very modest, um, if not sort of a flat line. And then there's a group that just falls farther into debt. Um, there are some more recent studies that indicate some bigger impacts under certain conditions, but but it's best to think of microfinance as as um, as a good intervention, but not a silver bullet. So more work to be done, eh? Yeah, more work to be more done, especially to- in targeting, finding the right people that can benefit the most from it. Now, we talked about the six eyes, and, and then you come up with a seventh one, identification. Uh, not unlike visiting a child to, that you sponsored to see who they are. What is identification? Uh, it's more than just meeting someone. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so the last chapter in the book talks about this, about this seventh eye that, that I call identification, which is 
goes beyond impact. It's more um, part of it is is an impact on ourselves, where we actually learn to identify even in a kind of a spiritual way with the poor, where we begin to see ourselves as people who are like the poor. Um, and, and a lot of good research, for example, shows us that um, that the upper middle class investment banker or high end programmer that walks the streets of San Francisco, given the right circumstances, would exhibit or the wrong circumstances, I could say, um, would exhibit some of the very some some very similar behaviors to the homeless that we see on the street. On the same street. <laughs> yeah, on the same street that that we're all a few bad breaks away from holding up a cardboard sign um, that asks for cash. Um, what, what, a, what a lot of studies show is that, for example, when people voluntarily fast, their cognitive ability goes down and, and, and certain things can, can, um, can trigger a lack of, of cognitive function. For example, there's a, there's a study that I love that I talk about in the book where people, do, people who've been fasting for a couple of days do word searches, and then after they find the word donut, it's really hard to find the next word <laughs> in the puzzle. Uh, so we, we think of the poor sometimes uh, unfairly, the scientific evidence would say, as being as having as not being smart or just being people that make bad decisions. And that's why they're poor. Whereas what the what the evidence says that I talk about in the book is is that if any of us happen to be in a poverty trap, we would exhibit very similar behaviors to those we see among the homeless on the street. They're but for fortune. That's right. Well, as an interviewer, sometimes the best questions come from other people. And uh, in this case, your dentist. I mean, I have to ask you, you know, been to any crazy new countries lately? That's sort of his, his typical question. Mm hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so so recently I was just I was just in Guatemala this summer uh, visiting uh, the village that I work in with Mayan Partners, which is this this NGO, this non-government organization, very small one that I lead with a bunch of my college friends. And we, we committed about 15 years ago to, um, to this village and we, we sponsor a middle school. It's a, a faith-based middle school in the village and a, a community library and a, a preschool. And we do some, some very small um, kind of uh, artisan microfinance, microenterprise work there as well. And, um, and we've learned to, uh, to identify with these, with these folks. And I think they've learned to identify with us. And when we go back, it's uh it's kind of like a family reunion. We watch each other's kids grow up. And um, yeah, it was, I, I talk about this in, in the chapter on, on identification because, because I, I, I think, I don't know, maybe it was sort of uh, maybe 12 or 13 years ago when we had just started the organization, we thought, you know, how many good years do we have left? You know, and here we are kind of in our forties and we thought, I don't know, 30 or whatever. Um, in terms of like travel and that sort of thing, you know, well, why don't we just commit, we can't save the world, but why don't we commit ourselves to the welfare of this one village? And, um, I would encourage others to, to, to do the same, to, to, to band together with their, with, with their friends and, and sponsor children all in the same village, uh, and, and take trips to that village to visit your children together, find out what the issues are in the village and how, how you can help resource some of the dreams that, that the people themselves have in that village and compassion international actually has a program. If you go to, I think it's www.compassion um, slash shrewd Samaritan. They actually have a program where people can, um, can join with their friends to all sponsor kids in the same village. And I think it's a beautiful thing because we know child sponsorship works and people have an opportunity to, um, 
to sort of engage in this kind of uh, in, in this kind of philanthropic work with their social network with their friends. Alone we go faster, together we go further. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Bruce, you're always welcome on Tech Nation. I hope you come back. Thank you so much, Maureen. Great to be with you. My guest today is USF professor Bruce Weidick. His book is Shrewd Samaritan, Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. It's published by Thomas Nelson, a subsidiary of HarperCollins. I'm Maureen Regan. You're listening to Tech Nation. Addressing the world's problems can be done in many ways. One is to develop effective treatments which address widespread medical conditions and even preconditions, such as the case with the bacteria H. pylori, which you may have heard about given its role in the awarding of a Nobel Prize. I asked Gilead Ridde, the COO of Red Hill Biopharma, to remind us about H. pylori. H. pylori is a bacteria of the gut that was discovered by two researchers from Australia as being associated with ulcer disease, creating ulcer disease, really. And that was warranted the Nobel Prize uh, Award in 2005 uh, for this discovery of a bacteria that was living in the gut, in the acid environment, and creating disease. Well, the thing that's sort of amazing to me is that there are so many things in life that are created by bacteria, viruses, fungus, but we can't see that if we just look at the disease. That's correct. It's a lot of work being done today with microbiome and other uh, diseases that are inflictions of potential balances uh, from bacteria and how they interact with our body. H. pylori is a very special case where it's known to be associated not only with ulcers but also with gastric cancer. So recently the WHO, the World Health Organization, has categorized uh, Helicobacter pylori, H. pylori, as a class 1 carcinogen, and there's risk of uh, gastric cancer development. And now the problem of resistance is emerging, which creates a need for new therapies to be brought to the market. Now, do we all have H. pylori, or is this something you might catch and then eventually have to deal with over time? It's a great question. Overall, in the world, prevalence is about 50%. So about 50% of the people are infected without knowing it. Only a minority of people develop over time uh, the diseases that are associated with the infection. But people who suffer from uh, gastric pain, abdominal pain, chronic, and have no uh, idea of the source of that, need to go and check it out. And they are tested amongst the battery of tests to diagnose this uh, source of the pain for Helicobacter pylori infection. And if it's positive, because of the risk of developing uh, either gastric cancer or ulcers in the future, there's a need to treat the helicobacter pylori and remove it and eradicate it. Now, standard of care may be hit it with every antibiotic we have. Yes, there's been a lot of work to try and find antibiotics. A few standards have evolved over time from the mid-90s when they were first approved. Uh, But since then, resistance to these antibiotics has emerged. So they're no longer effective. So now we see failures of treatment in the 60 to 70 percent only success. So People get treated for two weeks on therapy, but then they come back to to check whether they were uh, eradicated and they're failed. So they need a new therapy that will be a one-and-done treatment that will get your eradication success, and that's what we're looking for. 
So that's where Red Hill comes in. What did you guys do? So we uh, developed a next-generation therapy, bringing in antibiotics that have not been used uh, to treat Helicobacter pylori, but for which Helicobacter pylori is sensitive and not resistant. And we have shown in a phase three study that we can eradicate H. pylori to a very high success rate, degree, and uh, much better than what current standard of care can achieve. This is also very tolerable by the patient, so they can take it, the course of therapy that we provide, two weeks therapy, and to a 90% success ratio, uh, eradicate the bacteria. How is it so different from the other drugs? Well, we're using antibiotics which have a proven effect on the uh, bacteria, but they have not been used in the population at large and have not created resistance. And that is the main difference. So the sensitivity of the bacteria has not been jeopardized by using the, the products that we're using widely on other uh, indications and treatments. So this is not a new drug. This is a drug that existed and was effective, but has just never entered this this solution, if you will, medical solution stream. Exactly. This The, the antibiotic that we're using in an all-in-one combination we call Talesia is the product. So to make it simpler for patients to be able to take a simple product, one kind of drug, to treat one kind of disease. Uh, but it has been used to treat TB and to be uh, treating MAC infection in HIV patients or other immunocompromised patients, but it hasn't been around in the population at large. And we're repositioning it together in the combination that we are producing to treat Helicobacter pylori in a simple, safe, and effective way. And so the idea is treat for two straight weeks and then take it back, not enough time to eradicate, completely eradicate the bacteria, don't introduce it again, don't play with it, have it be done so no resistance develops. Exactly, exactly. We treat two weeks at a dose that eradicates the uh, bacteria at a very high likelihood of 90%, very safe and well tolerable by the patients, and then there's not too much exposure later on to create resistance. You've just finished your phase three trials and gotten approval and say, we're going to go, now we're applying for a new drug. So that now we're talking months to market. Exactly. We've done all the hard work. We've done two phase three studies. We completed the uh, last one at the end of 2018. We are now submitted the new drug application and we have qualified infectious disease product designation, which provides us a priority review by the FDA, eligibility for that, which means that by the end of the year, we expect to have the approval uh, if FDA finds that uh, positive. How did you figure out that it had really done this, that it had really killed the H. pylori? There are approved standard methods to detect the infection. It's called a urea breath test, which is one non-invasive gold standard. Uh, other stool tests are available. Uh, and uh, gastroenterologists can also use an invasive test via endoscopy to analyze whether you have the infection. So once you complete the course of antibiotics, a month later you can come back into the clinic, just do a non-invasive urea breath test and confirm the eradication. Because uh, in a month it would have grown back if it was there in significant amounts. Precisely. You need to wait at least a month in order to prevent a false uh, negative finding 
Well, back to the World Health Organization. When they list this on their watch list as an urgent need, we're talking about that's a world health problem. We just talked about how you are approved by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration here in the United States. How do you plan to bring this out to the world? We certainly plan as the next stage once we've gotten FDA approval in the United States to develop and bring the product to other territories where it's needed. And those are multiple. The Far East has very high prevalence, very high resistance rates to antibiotics currently used and very high rates of gastric cancer. So those are very interesting territories to, to which there's an unmet need to bring Talisia to. Uh, Europe and other territories are also on the path, and we will plan to work with the regulators in those territories and potentially with pharma, pharma partners who commercialize in those territories to bring the drug to the market there. Of course, people are listening to this and saying, how do I know I don't have H. pylori and I shouldn't go down and get tested and take this drug? I mean, how, how do you know that? It's an excellent question. <clears throat> and awareness to the need to be tested is growing. And in the Far East, where there's higher proportion of gastric cancer, the authorities are already moving towards a search and treat paradigm where populations of high risk are being screened annually whether they have the infection, and if they do, they're treated. In the U.S., we're not there yet. Uh, we, um, the test and treat paradigm is the ruling paradigm, where if people have abdominal pain, which is chronic, uh, without a known cause, then they're tested to see if they have Helicobacter pylori. Over time, this might evolve, and with awareness uh, and understanding of the risks associated with H. pylori, more and more people may be evaluated and screened. So if you have any of those indicators, ask your doctor. You can be easily screened without taking your big shot at, well, let's just take it. No, you can just wait and see. Yes. And then shortly you'll be able to do this. Well, these are very exciting times for Red Hill. That's certainly very exciting for us. We're hoping to uh, develop into a, a fully integrated commercial uh, company here in the United States. Uh, thank you. Well, we appreciate you coming in. Hope you come back see us again. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Gillian Redday is the COO of Red Hill Biopharma, headquartered in Tel Aviv with U.S. headquarters in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information is available at redhillbio.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.